Hello, I'm Dr. Annalene Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Bites, a series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. Risk Bites looks at the key dental legal risks and issues affecting dental practitioners across Australia and provides helpful advice and guidance on how to steer clear of them, leaving you free to provide safe and high quality dental care for your patients. In this edition, we're going to focus on the role of body dysmorphic disorder and how it impacts on our ability to achieve patient satisfaction. So Mike, why are we discussing body dysmorphic disorder today? Well, thanks, Annalene, and hello to all of my colleagues out there. We've been receiving incredibly positive feedback about these podcasts, and we have also, not surprisingly, had members suggest to us areas of interest and areas where they perceive that there is a need for information. And one of these topics is body dysmorphic disorder, which I think you would agree is a poorly understood both within the dental profession and also more broadly in the community. We've had several members request a podcast about this disorder and one member in particular who is dealing with a complaint that while on the surface it is about dentistry, it is fundamentally about body dysmorphic disorder. So a shout out to this member, they will know who I mean, and... It is someone who was interested enough to send me an article on the subject and also a disclaimer to this member. Please rest assured that nothing that follows is related directly to you or your particular case. This is simply information to assist our colleagues when meeting, identifying and managing patients with body dysmorphic disorder. Thanks for that clarification, Mike. And it's fantastic that people are suggesting so many topics. It's certainly something that we value. So regarding body dysmorphic disorder then, I guess let's start, just tell me all about it. Well, firstly, I'm going to describe the condition and read some statistics about body dysmorphic disorder to set the scene and provide a framework of knowledge. Most of these statistics are based on an article written by Professor Timothy Newton. I've attended two lectures delivered by Tim, who is a psychologist dealing with psychological issues relating to dentistry predominantly with patients with dental phobias, but also with dysmorphia and other issues. He works with a dental team at King's College in London and assists patients to prepare for dental treatment, but he also assists the practitioners who will be working with these patients. Now, most importantly, this is a recognised psychological disorder that was first described in the DSM-IV in 1994. That is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is produced by the American Psychiatric Association. I'm emphasising this because this is not a description of a fussy or picky patient, but a genuine disorder. And this is important in how we deal with these patients. Now, the following description of the traits of this disorder are going to sound somewhat subjective in nature, but it's important we view these objectively. The disorder is characterised by a preoccupation with physical and aesthetic defects or imagined defects, often the face, skin and hair. It is equally proportioned in genders, usually begins late adolescence and often presents in the early 30s. It is generally continuous through life to a lesser or greater extent and rarely has spontaneous remission. It is characterised by, firstly, a preoccupation with appearance. In men, it is often to do with the genitals, with height, hair and body build. And with women, it is generally about weight, hips, legs and breasts. 
there's usually five to seven body parts of concern over the course of the disorder. Secondly, it is characterised by obsessive thoughts lasting hours every day. And thirdly, compulsive behaviours, skin picking, mirror checking, disguising or camouflaging the area of concern. These symptoms you're describing, Mike, seem that they would be quite pervasive in the people's lives. What impact does it have on the people who suffer from it? Well, considerable, Annalyn, it leads to distress and impairment of functioning. Many people have concurrent obsessive-compulsive disorders as well. Alcohol abuse as a means of coping is a common finding. 27% are housebound at some stage of their life due to the condition, and 78% have suicidal ideation at some or several points of their life. I'm going to read that again. 27% are housebound at some stage of their life due to this condition, and 78% have suicidal ideation at some or several points of their life. I'm emphasising this to reinforce how serious and all-pervasive this condition is. Unfortunately, many members of society, including dental practitioners, think this is a silly pickiness that can be sorted out by a bit of rational explanation. It can't. Now, if we look at the frequency, many patients are not diagnosed, but a population frequency of 1% to 3% is accepted. So for the average dental practitioner, this will likely mean one patient every week or two. It also means that quite a few practitioners listening to this podcast will statistically be part of this cohort. We as a profession are not exempt. The frequency in differing practices is also skewed. Cosmetic or dermatological medicine attracts between 3 to 50% of their patients. Now, these are wildly varying stats dependent on the study, but undeniably an overrepresentation. Orthodontics, particularly adult patients, around 8%. It would therefore seem predictable that dental practices that promote themselves as cosmetic will attract more patients with body dysmorphic disorder. Advertising of these cosmetic services will naturally attract these patients. Now, dentistry has undergone an extraordinary change in direction over the last 30 years. We've moved from being a purely treatment and prevention of disease profession to also being, and in some practices exclusively, a provider of cosmetic and aesthetic treatments, the ubiquitous orthodontic treatments, teeth bleaching, Botox and fillers, and cosmetic tooth treatments such as veneering. This has been brought about by affluence, revolutionary products and techniques, and a consumer-driven market who know about these treatments and can do their research on the internet and know what they want. If you think that you detected an inflection in my voice when I said the word research, you're right. Now, an estimated 75% of patients with body dysmorphic syndromes seek cosmetic treatments. Liposuction, rhinoplasty, Botox, tooth whitening. And frighteningly, 65% of these people are provided with the treatment. And why do I say frighteningly? Because here's the punchline. 90% of patients with body dysmorphic disorder who undertake treatment are disappointed with the outcome. This is simply because this is a psychological disorder and not a physical defect or disorder. Treating the perceived defect will not cure the disorder. 
This simple statement and statistic should drive our approach to offering cosmetic procedures to patients we perceive may have unrealistic or unattainable expectations from treatment. We as a profession are not particularly adept at diagnosing or picking patients with body dysmorphic disorder, but we can follow a few basic ground rules that will help us avoid trouble down the road. Annalyn, I'm sure that you would agree that dentolegal consultants routinely recognise this problem when assisting our members who are dealing with a disgruntled, complaining or litigious patient. We read the clinical records and you can see the problem coming like an oncoming train. Now this is not because we are any cleverer than our colleagues. It is merely that because we are reading the records we know something has gone wrong and it is unfortunately a regularly repeated scenario. Often the problem only becomes apparent after the treatment and this is often when the ceramic veneers are cemented irreversibly. The dentist is admiring a job well done and a great aesthetic result and the patient is dying inside, seeing their teeth ruined and their hard-earned savings wasted. Now, I'm not overstating this, having read many letters of complaint and spoken with many practitioners who have produced a great result. It is simply that there is a canyon of disconnect in what the practitioner has provided and what the patient was expecting. Unfortunately, experience has taught us that there is generally no meeting of minds or acceptance by the patient concerned by an explanation or even a refund of fees. The disappointment lasts. Even remaking or remodelling may not lead to an acceptable result for our patient. Those statistics, Mike, are alarming indeed when you set them out like that. So to help colleagues in their identification and management of these patients then, where does it all go wrong? In short, on day one. Generally, in our not recognising the red flags when they are first presented to us, most patients with body dysmorphic disorder doctor shop. So a patient who presents with a history of disappointment with previous dentists and treatments, and not just dental treatments, may just be unlucky, but perhaps there is more to the story. So prick your ears up, colleagues, and listen to your patient's story. Patients who talk you up, telling you how great you must be or what a great job you did on their friend or the patient presentation on your website. There's a reality check here. Most of us are not that great that we deserve praise before we provide treatment. Now, warning sign number two. Patients who may seem to know as much or more about the treatment than you do. This may be part of the obsession. They have researched this treatment extensively and this can lead to a multitude of problems. Firstly, the research and the perfect results your patient has seen on the web may differ from what you intend or what you are capable of producing. Their facial shape, facial symmetry or features may dictate that the whole result will not be like the examples on your webpage. Beware the temptation to agree to a particular treatment, product or process that your patient demands because that is what they want. Stick instead to what you know and what works best in your hands. Secondly, this patient research can lead to failures in the consent process. Our patient knows so much that we may not enforce the consent process. The risks and warnings, the advice on likely outcomes as much as we normally would because our patient seems to know about it already. Conversely, our patients may not listen when a practitioner describes risk and warnings, limitations and likely outcomes. Why should they? They've researched this thoroughly and know how it should turn out. 
So they may tune out of this discussion because they have already envisioned the outcome and they just want to get on with it. This is not a patient problem. It is our problem because it is our professional obligation to ensure the consent process is valid. This scenario is well described in Dental Protection's Case Matters podcast. You've made me look like a horse. And I would encourage my colleagues to listen to this also to hear how this particular case unfolded. Warning sign number three, and the red flag we should not miss, when the defect or deficiency that your patient describes is so minor that in your opinion you can barely detect it, or you don't believe that it is an actual defect. If you can't see it, you can't fix it. These are the defects that make up a high proportion of the 90% dissatisfaction with treatment outcomes. We just have to learn to say no. Making sure that your consent process is sound and providing our patients plenty of information, visuals of the outcome, mock-ups, time in temporary veneers or crowns is all very helpful and protective, but sometimes we just need to say no. Our patients can be persuasive, they can flatter us, they can tell us how much they trust us, they may try a coercion, but if you can't envision how the result is going to look significantly different, you have to say no. No, I don't think I can provide the result you are hoping for. I can refer, I can suggest other avenues of treatment, but I don't believe I can achieve the result you are looking for. In one sense, it doesn't matter how good your consent process is. No one wants to deal with a disappointed and angry patient who believes that you've ruined their teeth or at best wasted their time and money. Yeah, thanks for that, Mike. It's a really interesting topic and I feel that we've only really scratched the surface today. Where can our colleagues learn more about this if they wish? I would recommend Professor Timothy Newton's articles and the source references he uses. Also, the DSM-5 has links to articles and descriptions which are very helpful if you can access a DSM-5. Links to these resources will be made in our episode notes. Thanks, Mike, for that incredibly relevant and helpful content. And thank you all for listening. We do hope this podcast was helpful to you and we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.